Summer is a great time for catching up on military history, and my book about the seven Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II is out now. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Major General George Edward Pickett, Division Commander, Army of Northern Virginia. My brave boys were full of hope and confident of victory as I led them forth. Over on Cemetery Ridge, the Federals beheld a scene never before witnessed on this continent. A scene which has previously never been enacted and can never take place again. An army forming in the line of battle in full view under their very eyes. Charging across a space nearly a mile in length over fields of waving grain and anon of stubble and then smooth expanse. Moving with the steadiness of a dress parade. Oh, the pride, the glory. An excerpt from today's narrative special, Gettysburg, Voices from the Front, Part 2. We'll begin the program right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. Today's program is another in a series of storytelling specials. First-person accounts are the living link we have to what occurred at Gettysburg, and although some of the accounts may be less than accurate due to the various authors seeing only their narrow view of the conflict and having limited information, they still bring to life the battle in a deeply personal way. You could call this an immersive type of history, as I've woven the first-hand accounts together so they unfold in a linear way. A Union victory was far from a foregone conclusion at Gettysburg, and these words from two centuries ago bring us closer to that history and those times. Now travel back with us to a divided America and the gravely uncertain days of July, 1863. Gettysburg Voices from the Front, written and edited by Robert Child, narrated by Joe Pike and various voices. Culp's Hill. General Henry Hunt, Chief of Artillery, Army of the Potomac. When Longstreet's guns were heard, Ewell opened a cannonade. Major Samuel McDowell Tate, 6 North Carolina. We were ordered, along with the Louisiana Brigade, to prepare to charge the heights. It had been ordered that when Johnson engaged Culp's Hill, Early and Rhodes should assault Cemetery Hill. Early's attack was made with great spirit by Hoax and Avery's brigades. Major Samuel McDowell Tate, 6 North Carolina. Our two brigades late in the evening charged the North Front, and after a struggle such as this war has furnished no parallel, 75 North Carolinians of the 6th Regiment and 12 Louisianians of Hayes' Brigade scaled the walls and planted the colors of the 6th North Carolina and 9th Louisiana on the guns. The enemy stood with the tenacity never before displayed by them, and with bayonet, club, musket, sword, and pistol and rocks from the wall, we cleared the heights and silenced the guns. General Henry Hunt, Chief of Artillery, Army of the Potomac. The failure of Rhodes to cooperate with Early caused the attack to miscarry. The cannoneers of the two batteries so summarily ousted, rallied, and recovered their guns by a vigorous attack with pistols by those who had them, by others with hand spikes, 
rammers, stones, and even fence rails. After an hour's desperate fighting, the two Confederate brigades were driven out with heavy loss, Colonel Avery being among the killed. There was a calm and determined resolve never to surrender. Later I learned of a heavy loss, a hastily scrawled death note in blood from our Colonel Avery, a gallant officer and a friend had fallen closest to the enemy's line and left me with these words. Major, tell my father I died with my face to the enemy. Lieutenant Frank A. Haskell, aide-de-camp, General Gibbon. The fight done. The sudden revulsions of sense and feeling follow, which more or less characterize all similar occasions. How strange the stillness seems. The whole air roared with the conflict but a moment since. Now all is silent. Not a gunshot sound is heard. And the silence comes distinctly, almost painfully to the senses. And the sun purples the clouds in the west, and the sultry evening steals on as if there had been no battle, and the furious shout and the cannon's roar had never shaken the earth. And how look these fields? We may see them before dark. The ripening grain, the luxuriant corn, the orchards, the grassy meadows, and in their midst the rural cottage of brick or wood. They were beautiful this morning. They are desolate now. Edwin P. Alexander, Chief of Artillery, Longstreet's Corps. I had orders to prepare for an assault on Cemetery Hill somewhere about 8 a.m. on the 3rd, and I selected the line and began placing the different batteries. And, by the way, the Federal batteries were, I thought, most remarkably amiable all the morning in allowing our batteries to move about in easy range and often in columns and masses which presented the prettiest possible targets. Between 11 and 12 p.m., I reported to Longstreet, all ready. Most of the morning of the 3rd was spent waiting for Pickett's men and getting into position. Early in the morning, I went to General Lee's tent to discuss our strategy. The plan of assault was prepared. Our artillery, which had begun moving into place, was to be massed in a wood from which Pickett was to charge, and it was to pour a continuous fire upon the cemetery. Under this cover of fire and supported by it, Pickett was to charge. Never was I so depressed as upon that day. I felt my men were to be sacrificed and that I should have to order them to make a hopeless charge. About midday, I was astonished and quite concerned to see from my vantage point on Cemetery Hill a large body of some 5,000 Confederate horse soldiers advancing eastward on the York Road towards the positions of our right flank. I immediately sent a dispatch to General Pleasanton. We had been on a hard ride for days and our forces were now gathered to effect a surprise on the enemy's rear position. We moved secretly through the woods and behind a tree line. I kept two brigades of Fitz Lee's men who were last to arrive on the field hidden to spring our trap. General David Gregg, Federal Cavalry. The orders from General Pleasanton were not in alignment with our situation. General Pleasanton had received word from General Howard that a large Confederate body of troops were advancing upon our position and for some unknown reason had ordered General Custer's men to join Kilpatrick on our left flank near the Round Tops. 
There was not a moment to lose, and I countermanded General Pleasanton's order. I reported to General Custer, say you never got the message, I need you here. I had sent out Jenkins' sharpshooters to divert the Federal's attention while I shifted the remainder of Fitz Lee's brigade around the Federal flank. Brigadier General George Armstrong Custer. Upon receiving word from General Gregg, I understood as he did the situation fully. If the enemy were allowed to break through our lines to Meade's rear on Cemetery Ridge, it would not only be disastrous, the entire Battle of Gettysburg would be lost. I reported to General Gregg that I would be only too glad to stay upon his order and would be well pleased to remain with my brigade. General Gregg gave the order and the Great Cavalry Battle of Gettysburg was commenced. My pickets and the brigades of dismounted troops I had sent out were driven back. I had not intended such a protracted and violent dismounted fight as I had planned to send a mounted column around the Federal flank. An entire brigade of the enemy's cavalry, consisting of four regiments, appeared just over the crest in our front. To meet this overwhelming force, I had but one available regiment, the 1st Michigan Cavalry, and the fire of Battery M. I at once ordered the 1st to charge. I still felt an ambush was warranted, but decided the time had come for a mounted charge. I ordered the 1st Virginia to charge into their exposed flank. Unable to withstand the impetuosity of our attack, the enemy gave way in a disorderly rout, leaving cast numbers of dead and wounded in our possession. I cannot find the language to express my high appreciation for the gallantry and daring displayed by officers and men of the 1st Michigan Cavalry, and I challenge the annals of warfare to produce a more brilliant or successful charge. George Armstrong Custer. I hope you're enjoying part two and the conclusion of Gettysburg Voices from the Front. Next time, New York Times bestselling author Mark Greeny returns to Point of the Spear with a new military thriller, Armored. This is a book about uh, private military corporations and um, that sort of thing. Uh, very, very serious work these, these men and women do. I, I've trained around a lot of these people in, in my research and doing that, you see the humor and you see the kind of the gallows humor that, that helps people get through the day. That's next time. Now let's return to the conclusion of Gettysburg, Voices from the Front. Since a beguiling sense of quiet and calm had fallen over the entire field, I, Winfield Hancock, accepted General Gibbons' invitation to join his luncheon. When I reported to Longstreet between 11 and 12 p.m., he told me the infantry was not yet ready and said he himself would give the signal. Two cannon bursts from the peach orchard for the artillery to open. Meanwhile, he wished me to take a position where I could see the field well and take one of Pickett's couriers with me, and that I must send Pickett word when to charge. Colonel Alexander, if the artillery fire does not have the effect to drive off the enemy or greatly demoralize him so as to make our effort pretty certain, I would prefer that you would not advise General Pickett to make the charge. I shall rely a great deal on your judgment to determine the matter and shall expect you to let General Pickett know when the moment offers. This letter placed on me a responsibility I was scarcely ready to assume, as I fully appreciated the strength of the position, and while ready to attack anything on General Lee's or General Longstreet's judgment, I was by no means ready to go for that place on my own judgment. So I replied to the following effect. 
General Longstreet, your letter implies that there is an alternative attack open to us. If so, I earnestly advise that it be carefully considered before we open the artillery fire, because when the field is covered with the smoke, I will be able to see little, and the enemy's infantry is already covered from view. Ammunition is already very low, and it will take it all to try this attack, and we'd have nothing left for a new one. Lastly, no other attack can well be any bloodier than this must necessarily be, even if successful. I still desired to save my men, and felt that if the artillery did not produce a desired effect, I would be justified in holding Pickett off. Then I wrote a note to Colonel Walton at the signal artillery. Let the batteries open. Captain W.W. W. Wood. At 1 p.m. a single shot was fired from our Confederate guns, and in two minutes afterward, another. It was the preconcerted signal, and hearing the first gun, every man threw himself flat on the ground in obedience of orders. The echoes of the sound of the second gun had not died away when all our artillery on that part of the field opened fire on cemetery heights with a salvo the like of which had never been heard in America till then. Colonel Francis Walker. Second Corps, Army of the Potomac. The air shrieked with flying shot. The bursting shells sent over their deadly fragments down in showers upon the rocky ridge and over the plain behind. The earth was thrown up in clouds of dust as the monstrous missiles buried themselves in the ground or glanced from the surface to take a new, and perchance, more fatal flight. All was hideous and war seemed to have gathered itself together upon Cemetery Ridge. If you are coming at all, you must come at once, or I cannot give you proper support. The enemy's fire has not slackened at all. At least 18 guns are firing from the cemetery itself. Major General George Edward Pickett, Division Commander, Army of Northern Virginia. My brave boys were full of hope and confident of victory as I led them forth. Over on Cemetery Ridge, the Federals beheld a scene never before witnessed on this continent. A scene which has previously never been enacted and can never take place again. An army forming in the line of battle in full view under their very eyes. Charging across a space nearly a mile in length over fields of waving grain and anon of stubble and then smooth expanse. Moving with the steadiness of a dress parade. Oh, the pride, the glory. Lieutenant Frank A. Haskell, aide-de-camp, General Gibbon. None on that crest now need be told that the enemy is advancing. Every eye could see his legions, an overwhelming resistless tide of an ocean of armed men sweeping upon us. More than half a mile their front extends, more than a thousand yards, the dull gray masses deploy, man touching man, rank pressing rank, and line supporting line. The red flags wave. Their horsemen gallop up and down. The arms of 18,000 men, barrel and bayonet, gleam in the sun, a sloping forest of flashing steel. Right on they move, as with one soul in perfect order, without impediment of ditch or wall or stream over ridge and slope, through orchard and meadow and cornfield. Magnificent, grim, irresistible.
General George Pickett. Well, it is over now. The battle is lost. Many of us are prisoners. Many are dead. Many wounded. Bleeding and dying. This soldier lives and mourns and... And but, but for my wife, I would rather, a million times rather, be back there with my boys, to sleep for all time in an unknown grave. Senator John B. Gordon. More than a decade after the great battle of Gettysburg during my second term in the United States Senate, the Honorable Clarkson Potter of New York, a member of the House of Representatives, invited me to dinner in Washington. General Barlow, do you know Senator Gordon? No, sir. I have not had the pleasure of meeting the man. Well, he served in the Confederate Army with much distinction. Ah, Senator Gordon! So Senator nice Potter. to see you, sir. Nice to see you, too. Have you met Francis Barlow, formerly General Barlow of the Union Army? It is a pleasure, sir. A pleasure. Gentlemen, please sit down. I said to General Barlow that I had once met a very brave man, mortally wounded, who was his namesake on the field of battle at Gettysburg. General, are you related to the Barlow who was killed at Gettysburg? Why, I am the man, sir. Are you related to the Gordon who killed me? I am, I am the man, sir, I responded. No words of mine can convey any conception of the emotions awakened by those startling announcements. Nothing short of an actual resurrection from the dead could have amazed either of us more. Thenceforward, until his untimely death in 1896, the friendship between us, which was born amidst the thunders of Gettysburg, was greatly cherished by both. This has been Gettysburg, Voices from the Front, written and edited by Robert Child, narrated by Joe Pike and various voices. That's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed our two-part special on this weekend's 159th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Voices from the Front. Next time, New York Times bestselling author Mark Greeny returns to Point of the Spear with a new military thriller, Armored. This is a book about uh, private military corporations and um, that sort of thing. Uh, very, very serious work these, these men and women do. I, I've trained around a lot of these people in, in my research, and doing that, you see the humor and you see the kind of the gallows humor that. that helps people get through the day that's next time and if you like what you hear leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button and be sure to check out our point of the spear youtube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries there's tons to explore and i hope you check it out i'm robert child and this has been point of the spear music licensed from audioblocks.com Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.